Welcome to Career Chat, where we discuss career stories to help find a path for you. I'm your host, Andrea LeBaron, and it's my goal to help you find meaningful work. When Riley Jensen was growing up, sports like tennis, basketball, and football played a huge part of his life. He eventually earned a spot playing football for Utah State University, but after graduating, left sports behind for sales. It wasn't until his wife asked him an important question many years later that his love of sports and psychology came together in a new career at 42 years old. In this episode, I talk with Riley about how he decided to make that change and the difference he feels now between just working a job and being in a career he loves. We talk about the anxiety generation, the three things that can demotivate anyone, and how to turn a loss into a win. Let's jump in. Welcome, Riley. I am so happy to have you on my podcast today, and I'm really excited to learn more about this whole area of sports psychology. And I was hoping that you could introduce yourself to us, tell us a little bit about your family, where you're from, and also um, your job title. Yeah, so thank you, Andrea, for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm super excited about it, too. I love I love to participate in other podcasts because I like to hear how they work and, and what people are what, what people are listening to. So um, my name is Riley Jensen. Uh, I'm a mental performance coach or a sports psychology consultant, the lead mental performance coach for the professional soccer team here in Salt Lake called Real Salt Lake. I have contracts with Weber State University Athletics, Utah State University Athletics, and Westminster Athletics. And then interestingly enough, I, I work with the sales teams for uh, Clyde companies, I work with the sales teams for the Utah Jazz, not with their players, but with their sales teams and a few other businesses that we, we really enjoy helping them to carve out a niche and deal with the stresses and the vigors and the difficulties that are in both business and athletics. Um, typically, we work with, with teams and businesses in group settings, and then we also work with people and team and, and individual athletes um, on an individual basis. And so it's, it's really rewarding. Um, it's been a very, very fun and unique job. And we've, we've had the opportunity to grow and progress. I've hired, I hired two people in January, two, two more practitioners, uh, Justine Jones and John Osborne. And we just spend a lot of time. I, I tell people all the time I have the coolest job in the world because I get paid to help people try and live their dreams, right? And so um, that's, a, that's just a really fulfilling thing about my job. Yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I think we're kind of after the same thing because I am also trying to help people figure out what their life's work could be. And it sounds like, you know, that's something that you are doing as well. You're helping people live their, you know, their best life. And um, when I, the way this interview came about was I had a friend who, um, I know you know as well, and you were able to speak with her son after um, his uh, varsity team lost a really big sports championship um, about six months ago. And I didn't know anything about what you do, and it really sparked my interest in learning more. And I have to say, I, I have a son who plays competitive hockey, and so I also have a personal interest in this as well. <laughs> Yeah. But I, 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 so I'm coming at it from wanting to know a lot about what you tell clients and how you work with them, but also tracking your career. Because once um, you and I chatted before this interview, you mentioned that you actually had a big um, career change before you started doing this. And that is really fascinating to me too. So can you tell me what you were doing before you became a sports psychologist? Yeah, so I, I was in medical device sales. I hold, I sold hospital and hospital beds and stretchers for a Fortune 500 company called Stryker. Um, very good business, very high pressure, very, um, I felt like it was a prestigious job. Um, you know, especially in the medical device industry, it was a very good company, very well compensated. It was 100% commission, so... I basically was out selling beds. And if I sold beds that month, we made money. If I didn't, we didn't make money. And 
um, I came home from work one day. It wasn't, it wasn't a good day or a bad day. It was just a day. Um, I didn't feel like, I, I mean, I felt like it made some progress, but nothing like earth shattering. And I walked through the door and my wife, Georgianne says to me, she goes, what are you doing? And I like, I literally was like so shocked with the tone and the way that she was talking to me that I, I, I kind of remember turning around looking at the door, like, did I do something? Did I slam the door? <laughs> like, what did I do? And she goes, no, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, you got to clue me in here. And she goes, you hate your job. And I'm like, no, I don't. And at the time, I think I get a little bit confused on the timing of this, but um, it was about eight years ago. So I think Georgianne was pregnant with my son, Jack. We already had my daughter, Alexis. And I was like, Georgianne, I'm making good money. Like we're, we're doing really well. We've got another baby on the way. Um, and she's like, yeah, but you don't, you don't like your job. I'm like, yes, I do. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, tell me this. Do you want to work at this job in five years? And I was like, oh no, like that's not really an option. And she goes, so what are we going to do? Are we going to bounce around from sales job to sales job the rest of your life and call it good? And I'm like, am I reflecting this badly on like how I feel? And, and she's like, I don't know. What is it that you want to do? And I said, well, gosh, son, I've been talking about sports psychology for like 15 years, ever since I'd gotten done playing college football. And she goes, well, I mean, what does that mean? And I go, I don't know. She, I, go, I didn't know that like quitting my job and coming home was an option. She goes, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but like you've never even put anything on the table to, to, to even look at. And, and, and I go, okay. And she goes, well, can we do that? Can we start moving towards something that you want to do? And you know, fast forward from that conversation to about, I feel like it was like eight months later, nine months later, was still working my job. I hadn't quit. I got into school and luckily I was able to get into the University of Utah so we didn't have to move. There was another good school down in Fullerton called Fullerton, at Fullerton State that has a really good program that I got into. And she just said, well, let's not uproot everything. But now that you got in, I want you to come home. And I'm like, what? She goes, yeah, I want you to go, I want to go all in on this. Like, I don't want to, I almost like, can we do that? And she's like, I don't know, but it's going to be better than us paying for a nanny or paying for a babysitter. She goes, I'd rather, because most of my classes were at 4.30 at night. And so she goes, I'd rather do that and us just figure out how to, how to do this. So we, we, we took the leap and we haven't looked back. That's not to say that there hasn't been some scared moments some some fearful moments I remember I remember I was like maybe nine or ten weeks into my first semester and I was laying there awake going oh my gosh how in the world am I gonna make money and my wife goes are you awake and I'm like yeah she goes um why are you awake and I'm like well why are you awake and she's like I'm just like thinking to myself like how in the world are you gonna make money with this degree and I'm like oh my gosh like now you're telling me a year and a half after we had our first conversation. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I just got really worried about it. I'm like, me too. I, I have no idea. I have no idea how we're going to make money. Because really with my degree, there's only kind of one place to go, and that's to the special forces. So the Green Berets, the, the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers. And we work with special ops teams to help them manage their emotions and manage the pressure and the stress of what they do so that they can perform at a high level because my degree is in sport and performance psychology. And, and then other than that, it's kind of like you have to, you kind of have to build your own career, right? It's not like a sports psychology consultant goes to a clinic and goes, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm qualified for that sports psychology job. And they're like, we don't have one of those. And so um, I went, I, I called a friend of mine named Andrew Taylor's really good friend of mine. And I'm like, dude, how am I going to make money? And he just started laughing. He goes, dude, everybody goes through this when they're in graduate school. And I'm like, they do. And he goes, let me just tell you this. I got really good advice. I think you should hear this. He goes, you don't know what you don't know. And there's going to be opportunities. There's going to be networking. There's going to be all kinds of things that happen. That, that will be placed in front of you that, that you'll be like, oh, I didn't even think of that, right? And so that was, that was all I needed to calm down a little bit. It, wasn't, it didn't answer all my questions, but it, it allowed me to be a little bit more patient. And then, you know, I graduated a few years ago. I think this is, let's see, yeah, we're 
we're past the four year mark of graduating and um, things are just going well. We're, but it was a big step. And I was, I mean, when I started, I was 40. I graduated at 42 and I'm 47 now. And we're, you know, we're trying to make it work. And it's so far so good, knock on wood, right? Right. I love hearing, there's so many things about this I love. First of all, kudos to your wife for really right. kind of having a vision and bringing it up with you because it, it, in relationships, in my experience, sometimes it's easy to just kind of go along with the flow and not disrupt and um, doing, that's a hard thing to do to totally rearrange your life. So it sounds like she really kind of pushed you in the best way possible. And yep. then, um, you know, I think what strikes me too is that a lot of times we start these things in life that we know are going to be good and especially with careers, but we don't know exactly where it's going to end, but we, we feel like, okay, this is the thing I want. This is what I'd like to do, but I really truly don't know <laughs> what my job is actually going to look like. And I, I think you have to balance, you know, that kind of unknown with the known, like you knew that you liked this area and that, you know, there was a degree possible, there was a master's degree possible, but you didn't have all the pieces at the beginning. Yeah. And I think I, I, I truly feel like there was some sort of interve intervention from the universe or from the good Lord or whatever you want to call it, that um, some of the tools that I learned, I mean, look, a lot of sports psychology is about resilience training, right? Like learning how to be resilient, how to battle through things how to overcome fear and and turn it into excitement and so I, I i just really feel like a lot of the tools that i learned were specifically for me to be able to make it through grad school and to <laughs> grow and progress and not feel as fearful as maybe i would have and and to lean into adversity instead of shying away from it and um you know make myself uncomfortable so that i can become more confident in myself by presentation by networking by reaching out to people that maybe I think are way out of my league as a mentor right and so uh in some ways it, I was in the perfect grad grad school courses for like what I needed to do to make it through right and then what happens is you start to stack these small wins right so you get a win and somebody answers your call and says yeah I'd love to help you out or you you go and you see if you can be the uh you know, the, uh, not graduate assistant, but the, uh, the intern for the, for the football team at the University of Utah. And they say, yeah, we'd love to have you come in each week and do a mental toughness moment. You're like, oh, wow, that's going to be such a cool opportunity, right? And so you start stacking these small wins and then you go and you present and they're like, oh, that was really good. We haven't thought about that. And then you feel even better. And then all these little small wins, like, start preparing you for like feeling like you can really go and do it. And I kind of feel like that's how confidence is built, right? Like we think that it's going to be this big, like Eureka moment, right? Or this big aha moment um, where our paradigm shifts and all these things. But I really think that most of the time when we're, when we get good and when we get confident at something, it's, it's just a small, we're just stacking small wins and taking small steps outside of our comfort zone and getting a small win and getting another small win. And then pretty soon our circle and our, and our, our circle of confidence is so much higher than, than what we had anticipated. And it's been, I, I mean, I, there's so many ways that this has just been just a, a game changer for me. So. Well, I love so many things about that as well. This whole idea of, of building resiliency and mental toughness, I think, I mean, have we ever needed this more than in the last couple of years? I mean, all of us, you know, kids, teens, adults have had some tough, tough moments. And I, I think, um, you know, this whole idea of sports psychology or performance psychology really can, it seems to me, can be applied to all of us, really, whether we're an athlete or not, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I get it all the time. Like, you know, sometimes parents will come in, they'll bring their teenager and then the, you know, I always have the parents stay if it's a, if it's a, a youth, right? And then they'll walk out and they're like, oh, that's just like a really good lesson for life too. <laughs> I mean, look, sports is a microcosm of life, right? So if we're trying to help somebody be successful at sports, we're also trying to help them just be successful in life. 
And, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot of crossover. I think that's why some of the businesses that we work with um, really love it, right? And they, they love the crossover of some of these concepts that we teach and some of these things that we try and incorporate with people because they build that resiliency. They build that confidence. They build that um, ability to work through some negative self-talk or through imposter syndrome or through some of these different things that are coming at all of us especially in this COVID, this COVID pandemic that has been, it's really thrown a lot of us a curveball, right? And uh, change was already hard for anyone. And, uh, but the thing is, is before the pandemic, like change was in pockets of different people. Like maybe they were doing a career change or a job change with it. But the pandemic was changed for everyone at the same time. Yes. And so it was, it exacerbated. I, I tell people all the time, I feel like, I feel like COVID is kind of like credit card debt, right? Like it constantly hangs over you and hovers over you. There's like no escape from it. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so, a great so analogy. It does is it, it, is it makes maybe something that was maybe a smaller problem before feel bigger and feel more explosive to you because it's putting this little pressure on top of you like credit card debt does, right? Like, right. It's constantly hanging over you. It's constantly affecting your life. And so maybe you wouldn't have gotten mad at your kid tonight and you exploded because you're feeling all these, like these feelings and these emotions and you hadn't managed them. And then your kid becomes the brunt of that. And right. so, you know, we teach people to be a little bit more forgiving of themselves and to try and be a little bit less offensive to others. Right. Oh, I love that. I think those are two great ways to kind of combat that st added stress that we have with COVID. Going back though to sports, you were you someone that always loved sports growing up? Like, and did you have exposure early on to sports psychology or how did that idea even get planted in your mind? Yeah, since I can remember like having a football carve through the air or getting a, a, a baseball to curve or getting a tennis ball to sail over the net and into the green, like that's always been, when I look at it now with my studies, I think it's always been a little bit of flow state for me. Like that's just been something that like almost relaxes me and puts me in like a really content mood because for whatever reason I was blessed. I don't, I don't think I was the greatest athlete that's ever existed, but I think I was, I, I think I'm very coordinated. So my hand-eye coordination is good. So when you put a ball in my hand and say, let's bowl. I'm like, Oh, I got this. Or if you tell me we're going to play some tennis, I'm like, I got this. Or if I got, so I was really, really interested in sports. And I, my dad was the tennis coach at Utah state university when I was growing up. And he read a book um, that's called the inner game of tennis. And it's actually still recognized as like one of the better like sports psychology books out there. I've had some of my clients read it and it was written in 1974 so we're talking, you know, I'm 47. And Decades. I was so 47 years ago, right? And um, I think he kind of used me as a guinea pig. I don't, I don't think I knew it, but he was, you know, he would talk to me about, you know, superstition and how like the science has shown that like superstition doesn't help you and, and it doesn't affect you either. It doesn't help you or hurt you, right? And then he would talk to me about, you know, getting into a, a certain mindset before the game or before a match or something like that. And then I started playing competitive tennis when I was 12 or 13. And believe it or not, there's a really, I, I'm, I'm now the sports psychology consultant at Utah State, but I replaced like one of the pioneers in the field. His name was Dr. Rich Gordon. And my dad was the tennis coach. And my dad had kind of a funny personality, but he always called him Flash Gordon instead of Dr. <laughs> I and like so that. I met Flash Gordon when I was like 12 or 13. And the, I remember Dr. Gordon like kind of fixing his glasses. He's like, now are you here because your dad wants you to be here? Or are you here because you want to be here? And I, it's funny because I ask that question all the time now. Like, are you here because you want to be here? Or are you here because mom and dad think you have a problem? You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, I don't know, a little bit of both, you know. And he he gave me some tips and it really helped me with tennis. And then I moved to Salt Lake when I was 14 years old and then I was playing on the varsity basketball team at Cottonwood and I was petrified to get the ball at the end of the game. I did not want to shoot free throws. I was shooting like 48%. I was all over the place. My mom, I was, 
I mean, I could feel my armpits sweating, my feet sweating, my hands sweating when I was on the free throw line. And again, my dad connected me with a, uh, a sports psychology guy by the name of Dr. Henschen, and he happened to be the jazz guy for 33 years. Both of these guys, when I went back to school, are in my textbooks. So I just introduced to like two of like the greatest. The like, pioneers. Yeah, like they're just, they're amazing. And I remember I, we went through this little drill and we went through this little tool that I needed to shoot free throws. And we were playing against West Jordan. It was the state semifinals up at the University of Utah. Yeah. I had free throws. I made all four, but I think I hit every part of the rim, the backboard, the rim again, and every part of the, I mean, they were ugly. ugly. Heart but stopping. All, all four went in. And so <laughs> like, yeah, see, like we got this, like that tool works, right? And uh, so I think that's where I got exposed to it. Then I played football at Utah State and Flash Gordon used to always go, hey, my office is always open. And it's interesting, I never went into him. I really wish I would have because there were some tools that I really could have used while I was playing. But so that's how I got introduced to it. And I just happened to have these great examples. And then my dad, I don't know, he was uh, both my mom and my dad were, I think they were ahead of their time on. Like, I remember saying to my mom when I was like 10 years old, we were playing in like a little league, like Super Bowl, like the state championship. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, mom, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. She's like, good. I'd be worried about you if you weren't. Like everybody gets nervous. And she really normalized like that sport anxiety for me. And then I remember my dad, he would video football games and then he would hustle home and he would cut up all the plays that were bad and then splice the tape back together. And we'd watch the game and my dad, where's my interception? He goes, did you throw, did you throw an interception? And he would like splice the tape. So only the good plays existed. Like there was no bad plays like on the tape. So we, they were just kind of ahead of their time and they did, they, they just kind of had fun with like the mentality. And, it, you know, me and my, my two brothers, we all played college football and it was just like sports was not this big pressure thing, at least from my parents, which I think was a really, really big deal. It was not, it, it was not, I did not feel like my dad was going to like, you know, make the car into a coffin when I got done with a game and, and tell me all the things that I was doing wrong. Sometimes he would even joke. I remember in college, I threw an interception at Air Force and he goes, you know what my favorite pass was? And I go, which one? He goes, that throw to number 42. He goes, it was a beautiful spiral. I'm like, 42? We don't have a number 42. And he goes, no, no, no. He played for Air Force. It was the guy that intercepted him. And I'm like, oh, geez, dad. You know, like, he just had a way of just kind of joking about things and, 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 and help me not to take it too seriously. Um, and is that kind of the kind of, we'll get into this some more, but is that the kind of advice that you give to parents? You know, some might say, well, you know, you were, your dad chose to ignore all of the things that were kind of a problem in your game instead of addressing them. But you, you're saying you really benefited from that really positive reinforcement that, that both your parents yeah, gave I, you. So I gave you the story of my dad, like splicing the tape, but I don't think we ignored things, but my dad was super, if, if, if my dad did get on me, it was not about performance. It was about hustle or about effort mm. or about things that I can control. Yes. So that would be the advice that I would give to parents is if you want to, if you really want your kid to be good, you, you're not really supposed to be their coach. They have a coach, Right. Now, some of us, like, we dabble in coaching and being a parent, and that's just a really tough role. But if you're, if you're going to be a parent, your job is to be a parent first, and your job is to help them when they fall, not to, not to snowplow the, the, the ski run for them or to, to mow the lawn for them so everything's nice and smooth. It's to help them when they fall. And, you know, the, the, the old, like, Asian proverb is, is you know, fall down seven times, get up eight, and that's success, right? That's what I, that's what I see parents as being, but it's okay for you to be real with them about effort and about hard work, right? Uh, yes. Not about technical things, but effort and hard work. And I'll, I'll just give you an example. Like I'm, I'm you know my kids because you're the librarian at their school. But one of the things that I do with Alexis and Jack that are my little mind games that I play is like, Instead of my daughter coming home and getting an A on a test, I'll say, I'll say, Kyle, 
you must have put a lot of work into that. Did you do something different? Like, what did you do? And then they'll be like, oh, yeah. Like, I mean, me and mom, like, we went through the spelling words. And then I wrote them down again at school. And then I looked at them one more time. I'm like, oh, you know, that's a really cool thing that you're a hard worker. And, and so when you reward hard work, instead of intelligence, right, instead of like a trait or something like that, then when they go away to college, when they get to, you know, where a bunch of intelligent people are in their class, instead of taking their ball and going home because they, because God, dad told me I was intelligent my whole life. And then I'm here and all these people are smarter than me, right? Instead of taking their ball and going home and going, man, mom and dad lied to me my whole life. And I don't, I don't have the tools to succeed here to get into this master's program. They'll say, God, you know what? These people are really talented. I'm just going to have to work a little bit harder at this. If I just if I just stay a little bit after and work with the professor and maybe do a study group and do the, it seems more possible to them because everything in their life was about hard work, not about this born intelligence or the same thing with sports. Like, you know, I think my parents, they messed this one up a little bit. They always told me how gifted and talented I was. They're just like, oh my gosh, you're so gifted and talented, right? Well, when I got to college, it was an eye opener because I was no longer gifted and talented. Everybody was good. Like there was not one person there that wasn't, that couldn't jump higher than me, run faster, couldn't lift more. And so I was like, whoo, I better get to work, right? Like I, I had to make a decision. So that's one way is just rewarding hard work and effort. And my son, Jack, I, I laugh all the time. He's like, hey, can I help you shovel? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, you know what I like about you, Jack? You're a hard worker. So both of them think that they're hard workers. They're not yet, but I want that to be important to them, right? Yes. And the second thing that I think parents can do with their kids that turns a loss into a win, and I actually just went through this and I'll share kind of a vulnerable story with you is, we, you know, you know, at the, the elementary school, there's a play and um, there's all kinds of kids that try out for parts of this play. Well, my daughter Alexis wanted to try out this year and I'm telling you, like, I'm not gifted musically, but I know when it sounds right she put together an amazing, like to me, it was like, almost like make me cry type parent thing where you're just like, that was unbelievable. She sang a million dreams from the greatest showman. She had to sing 16 bars plus a refrain and try out for the Lion King. She wanted to be Zazu, right? Well, we get the email back on Sunday and she's like, we had 75 people try out. And so none of the fourth and third graders and uh, sure enough, alligator tears are coming down her face because she really, really wanted it. And I had no idea that she wanted it that bad, but it was a, I'm, I'm so glad I had this training because you can turn a loss into a win almost instantly for your kids. If you reward the fact that the, that, that they put themselves out there, that they made themselves vulnerable, that it took courage and bravery. If you can reward the courage and bravery of the moment, um, you turn a loss into a win because everything with our kids should be about being brave enough to put yourself out there and courageous enough to put your put yourself out there. Not about the end result of like, I got the part or I didn't get the part. I'm so proud of you, honey. And look, she cried for a good 10 minutes before I could even get her to like, like calm down. We're trying to take some deep breaths. And I'm like, I love you so much, hon. And and she goes, I just don't understand why they had us try out. And that's a whole nother question, right? Like maybe they should have put it out to the fifth graders first and then went back, but that's neither here nor there. The lesson was this, I said, honey, I just want you to know, and I hope that you'll keep this spirit that I'm so proud of you for putting yourself out and trying to get something that you wanted, right? And I go, and she, and I go do you promise me that you'll keep doing that after this? And she she held out her little pinky, you know, so she had, she had me pinky swear. And you know what, the rest of the day went well, because I just told her, I go, I'm so proud of how brave you were and how courageous that was. And it turned it into a win, right? And what I'm trying to value is, is to get anything that we want, we have to put ourselves out there. We, we have to, we have to step out of our comfort zone. We have to, and that also builds confidence because one of these days she's going to do that and, and she's going to nail it. Right. And she's actually going to get the part. And I don't even think she got cut because she didn't do a good job. I think I think they just made a general sweeping decision. Right. But one of these days she's going to make it and she's going to be like, oh, I did. I worked hard for that. That that was a little bit brave for me. Right. And so 
those are fun things that you can do as parents that help that help build the lessons and and build the mindset that you want for them later in life when when it's like I don't know if I want to try out for that college dance travel team right and you're like no you can do this you you remember you've you've always put yourself oh yeah that's true and then they work hard at it they get themselves prepared and then they put themselves out there and sometimes they're going to win and sometimes they're going to lose but it's about that bravery and courage and that's that's huge right yeah it's the growth mindset right it's right and and I the thing I like too that you've brought up is that it's the things that are more within their control like she didn't have any control over who was going to be picked so you can't reward her for you know, or, or be disappointed in the fact that she wasn't picked because she had no control over that. What she had control over was the effort, like you said, in, in trying. And I think that's so good. You mentioned to me earlier that you and your colleagues refer to this kind of generation of teens and young adults right now as the anxiety generation. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And some of the, some of the things that you notice as you're coaching athletes and teens young adults um you know what are what is that what goes into that whole anxiety generation the the perfectionism that's a part of that and how do you how do you break that cycle so it's interesting because i was talking to the weaver state volleyball coach about this today right we were we were sitting there and he's like oh he goes, we're doing really well right now, but some of my freshmen, man, they are anxious. They are like high stress. There's a couple of things that are going into this right now. Number one, I think we all can agree that like our phones and our attention to phones and some of those things are contributing to this. There's no boredom anymore. There's no, there, there's no boredom for kids. Like if you have time to kill, you pull out your phone and you will not be bored. Right. Or for adults, for that matter, right? Adults too, yeah. You know what? And I say that all the time to college athletes and high school athletes. Like, hey, just so you know, this is not a you problem. This is an us problem. I'm not I'm not talking down to you because I struggle with this, right? Like, uh, there's things right. that I look at when, I'm, when I have a minute that, that are, like, totally mindless and not necessarily productive, right? Right. So, so, but one of the really good things for, like, parents to do with their kids that helps with this kind of stuff is allow them to be bored. Like when they yell at you, like, I'm so bored. Good, find something to do. That's not <laughs> on your computer. That's not on an iPad. That's not, find something to do, go outside and play. And you know what, if you're real bored, I got some chores for you. That's what our parents said. You know what I mean? Like, right. oh, you're bored, let me put you to work. <laughs> you know? Like, Absolutely. So, so there's this whole boredom thing that's that's interesting because when you're bored, it causes uh, or it stirs an emotion to help you to be creative. And, and being creative is huge, not only for the success of like, if you want to be an artist, if you want to be an actress, if you want to be an athlete, it stirs in you some sort of, some sort of creativity, right? So boredom is really good for creativity. And that, that forms all kinds of neural pathways that are really important for later in life. But I think one of the other things that's happening is there's not a lot of emphasis on practice in our society anymore. There's not a lot of, everything is about playing the game. It's mm. all about, when I was a kid, I remember I threw my first curveball in fifth grade, but I practiced it all the way through third grade and I practiced it all the way through fourth grade. And I finally got the courage to throw it in fifth grade. My brother is 18 years younger than me. He threw his first curveball when he was in fifth grade. And it was after we messed around with it for like two pregames. And then he went into the game, he threw his first curveball and the ball went about 300 feet over the fence. And you could just see it on his face. He, you could see the failure, the fear of the failure, the fear that like that didn't go well. Oh my gosh, I'm not good, right? And so it's interesting because it used to be the kids were out playing basketball and hoops all the time and they were shooting it over the backboard and they were doing hook shots. And they were doing, well, now you go to AAU, like everything is regimented. Like you, you have a couple of practices and then you'll play 70 games during the season. You hardly ever practice because you don't have time to practice. You got 70 games. You go to, um, 
like comp league baseball. They play like 90 games in the summer. You know, I don't know what it is for hockey, but I guarantee you there's a lot of hockey games compared to when maybe your husband played hockey, right? Mm -hmm. there, was, there was a lot more practice time in between. Okay, this is what happened to the game. Let's work on this. And so it built confidence. It helped, it helped kids to understand that they could work towards something and get better at it and then implement it into a game. And so I think there's this whole, the only sport that I see right now, and it's really, and I really don't think it's because they're any better than anyone else. It's just that it's the way that the sport goes is football still practices all week and then they play on Saturday. They practice all week and they play on Saturday. But even them, I see them sneaking in like these little like scrimmage games on Wednesdays with like, right. another, they're even trying to make it so that they don't have to coach the skills and help these kids to build that confidence they're they're kind of like it's kind of like coaching is turned into like oh let's roll out the footballs and let them play we don't have to we don't have to coach the skills we don't have to build the confidence up so as a result i know this is a long answer i just feel like there's a lot of anxiety and it's because of fear of failure like they they know that they haven't practiced this a lot and now you're asking me to do it in the game and this could be really embarrassing like this shot could get blocked. I could travel. I could, I don't know how to dribble yet. I haven't even practiced dribbling, right? And and so how do we help our kids or, or what do you tell those athletes that are dealing with that fear of failure? Yeah, so, so when, when it comes to failure, it usually comes to like being, being outcome oriented or process oriented, right? So outcome an outcome i was just talking to a basketball player today and i'm looking at my little notes on my chalkboard here but um an outcome orientation would be i want to i want to score 17 points a game and i want to have seven assists per game right and i've been talking to him a little bit about this right like okay so i understand that this is an outcome world but let's talk a little bit about what it means let's break that down a little bit into some smaller chunks that we can chew a little bit right because 17 points and seven i go have you ever averaged 17 points it's like no you know have you ever averaged seven no okay well let's talk about how many shots per game you're gonna have to shoot in order to get 17 points and i go depending on how many three pointers you make you're probably gonna have to make about six to seven shots a game right to be able to get 17 points in a game and depending on how many free throws you get but let's just say that you've got to make seven shots in a game. And let's just say that your lights out this year, like you're an unbelievable shooter. You're going to shoot 50% from two-pointer. You're going to shoot 40% from three-pointer. That means that you're going to make about 4.5 out of 10 shots. So that means for you to make seven shots, you've got to shoot like 16 times. I go, have you ever shot six? Oh man, that's a lot. <laughs> right. Oh, and that's if your lights out. That's if you're really like 40%, 50%. And he's like, Ooh. and I go, okay, so here, let's take the pressure off a little bit. What if we made our goal something that's a little bit more in your control, right? And he goes, okay, what do you mean by that? And I go, what if we just made it that instead of thinking to yourself that I was five for 15 shooting, or I was, you know, I was four for eight shooting or whatever it is and beating yourself up about missing shots. Let's start keeping track of how many of your shots were good shots within the context of the offense or good shots within like what the coach is asking you to do. And then it doesn't matter how many you make. So if you took seven shots and you were 0 for 7, but they were all wide open shots, that's grounds for Dairy Queen. Right. You know what I mean, because you took it within. Now, you're not going to miss seven shots every game. Right. You're not going to you're not going to do that. If you're right. wide open for seven shots, you're, you're going to get some shooter. You're going to make four out of seven for the most part. Right. Right. And then we talk about it in the in the terms of like assists. I'm like, if you want to have seven assists a game, you've got to put 14 plays in somebody else's hands with an opportunity for them to shoot. So you've got to be able to pass the ball. 14 times to be able to help them to do it just to get seven. And I go, and that's if they shoot lights out. So it might really be that if you want seven assists, you got to give 18, 19 nice passes to get the seven assists because people miss shots, right? He's like, oh, okay. Well, anyway, he came back in today and I guess for whatever reason that really resonated with him, right? 
And so now he's keeping track of all these things that are more process oriented than they are like outcome oriented. And it's a lot easier to control whether I took five good shots out of five than it is to, to say that I made five shots out of five. Cause sometimes it's your day. Sometimes it's your not, you're not, but he's like, yeah, for the first time in my life, I took 15 shots because I wasn't worried about the result of the shots. I was worried about whether I took a good shot. Oh, I think that's such a good point because it's so easy to look at the end result and say, well, I've got to set the standard. And if I'm going to, you know, hit all of these milestones, I got to be doing all of this stuff instead of just saying, Hey, you know, this, it's just in the process of trying where the success is. I'm wondering if you could apply this. I, I wanted to get your opinion about encouraging your, I don't know if you'd call them an elite athlete or your high school athlete to go for a college scholarship. Because in this context where you don't have control over whether you are awarded that scholarship, you have control over the process of applying and working hard for that scholarship. In your experience playing college sports, you know, is there value in, in going for that scholarship and is it worthwhile or is it very dicey for parents to be pushing that? Well, I think it's definitely if the parents are pushing for it, it's dicey. Now, if the kid loves the sport and really wants to do that, then I think as a parent, it's your job to do whatever you can to support. And that doesn't, that doesn't always mean monetarily. That could mean that you have to get up early in the morning and go shoot free throws with your kid and help them on free throws or whatever it is. But here's, here's, here's where this becomes a little bit dicey, right? So unrealistic expectations are demotivating like crazy. Hmm. So when you talk about, when you talk about motivational theory, like there's three enemies of motivation that are really bad, right? So comparison, which we all kind of know about, we know that the phones like cause a lot of that stuff and social media, all that kind of stuff. Perfectionism is the second one that can become demotivating. And then the third one is unrealistic expectations. Now, I get athletes, that, especially in college, that push back on me and they're like, well, am I not supposed to dream big? Am I not supposed to like shoot for the moon and the stars and the sun? I'm like, no, 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 that's where, that's where we're messing this up a little bit. Yes, shoot for a college scholarship if that's what you want. If you're in college, shoot to go to the pros if that's what you want. But you have to work backwards from that goal and make these things bite-sized. So if the possibility of playing in college is two years from now, what do you need to do to be a college athlete and work backwards? What's your two-year plan? What's your one-year plan? What's your six-month plan? What's your three-month plan? What's your one-month plan? What's your weekly plan? But most importantly, what are the three or four things that you need to do every single day if you really want that scholarship? And then work that process and let the college scholarship take care of itself. Know that you got to get 100 shots in a day, right? Know that you need to do a good job of like taking care of your body with nutrition and sleep know that you need to do these things and cut those down into bite-sized like manageable pieces you know it's like in the army they say how do you eat an elephant you know it's one bite at a time well that's kind of what we're saying here like this is a big goal right this is big we got to cut it into small pieces so we can start working on this right and then again like i talked at the beginning you start stacking small wins and you start getting to like where you want to be, right? And then all of a sudden you're in a conversation and maybe you're not in the conversation for the school that you wanted, but you're in the conversation for four other schools, right? And then those four schools offer you and then the other one starts looking at you like, wow, this, wait a minute, maybe we need to talk to this kid. And then now you were so process oriented and you're so busy, like just taking care of what you need to do each day that like things start coming together for you, right? Now, um, usually where people get sideways on unrealistic expectations, when I say that's demoting, it's usually on the timeline that they want, right? Mm -hmm. So usually we beat ourselves up with woulda, coulda, shoulda. And that, my joke is stop shooting all over yourself, right? <laughs> because, because should is like really, really bad. But a lot of times we'll do this as adults, right? Man, I should have been a manager by now. I should already be making this amount. I should already be living in this neighborhood. I should already have this. I should already be that. I should, it gets really, really overwhelming, right? But if we can call time out 
And if we can put a little bit more time on the clock and understand that anything that we, that we think is worthwhile, anything worthwhile usually takes a little bit longer and is a little bit more difficult than we anticipated. Right. right? So if you have a son that plays hockey and he wants to play college hockey, it's going to be hard. And you're going to have to put that into bite-sized pieces. And he may not get exactly what he wants to begin with, but for example, with me, I wanted to play Division One football. I wanted to be an All-State quarterback in high school, and I wanted to sign a Division One. Well, I wasn't All-State first team. I was All-State second team. I got a scholarship to Snow and nowhere else, right? It's a two-year college. Well, and then I played for two years there, and then it really worked out. Then I had five college scholarship offers, right? And I finally got there. But if I would have been like, ah, this is ridiculous. Like, I didn't – this isn't at all how I planned it then I could have cut my nose off to spite my face, not realizing that two years later, like all my dreams still came true. I didn't play four years of division one, but I played two years of division one. Right. And so much of that story you just shared is in the process. It was in a manageable process and it was in the small win for the bigger win. But I think, like you say, we kind of, Sometimes we're inundated these days with this idea of shoot for the moon, dream big. And if you don't get that, oh, well, you have to back out because that's just not the way that you planned it. Whereas life, like we've learned with COVID, it is always throwing you things where you have to adjust and, and change and maybe adapt those processes, but that you can flip those around and still have the win. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is really disappointing to me about this generation. There's a lot of kids that I know that I'm like, man, if you love football, there's a place for you. But they only loved it because they could play at BYU or Utah here in Utah, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a state or Weaver, it's not good enough for me. And so I'm just going to quit. And that could have been a wonderful experience for them, right? right? It could have been a fantastic experience, but that wasn't what you dreamed of. And so it's no, like, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take my, and typically when that happens, I, I kind of feel like they didn't really love the game. And that's what I tell kids like, look, if you wanna play college, you better love it because college is gonna take way more than it gives you. Now it's gonna give you a lot, but it's gonna take way more, right? I had a question about that because I wondered, you know, does a college that gives you a scholarship, I mean, they're using you obviously for their team, they're giving you an education, but your choices with your education are going to be influenced so much by how much time and effort you have to put into the team, right? It's well, so you brought up a couple of really good words and I, and I totally forgot that I use this all the time, but you, you were talking about adaptation and change and those kind of things. If I could, if I could boil down mental toughness, the two words, it's adaptable and flexible. Mm, that's, I love that's that. Toughness. That's in a nutshell, adaptable and flexible. That, like, that's what it is. And so, yes, yeah, there are constraints. Like when I played college football, I couldn't go take an internship in between my junior and senior year in New York City with MetLife to, to get my business degree. I, I was supposed to be working out with the team and making the team better. Like they're there are decisions and there are things that are made because you chose to go and play college football that you can't really work out. Like it's just not even really an option. Right. And so you do make decisions and sometimes you get a scholarship to go to a school that doesn't have your program that you really wanted to study, but it's free school. So how do I adapt and change to that? Right. And so it takes mental toughness to chase your dreams because nobody has a straight line to success. No, nobody's, you know, and I'm trying to do this with the square here, but like nobody's line looks perfect like this, right? It looks more like this. It's, it's much more messy to get to your goal than, than, than most people think. And that's why I say it's, it's much harder and more difficult than anticipated when you're trying to chase whatever it is that you think is worthwhile. So how do we practice that adaptability and flexibility with our athletes, but also with ourselves, with anyone? Like, how do we learn that mental toughness? You know, how do we develop it? So, so typically, and this will sound strange to you to begin with, but, but ego is what gets in the way of adaptability and flexibility. Mm. Ego is, ego is the obstacle, right? Like ego is the enemy. 
but like that book by Ryan Halliday, right? And The Obstacle is the Way is the other book. And, and he talks a lot about stoicism. But the, the way that I think is the best, the, the best way to teach adaptability and flexibility is number one, and, and I think we talked about this the other day, but like every single day, I always talk about pug, like one minute a day of pure unadulterated guts, right? Like if you can figure out a way to just step a little bit out of your comfort zone every single day, then when big changes come, it's not, it's not as like overwhelming or scary, number one, right? So if every single day you can take 60 seconds, just get, I'm going to go for it. Like, you know, the other day we were talking about this podcast and, and one of my employees like, oh, we should, you know, we should reach out to some more podcasts and see if they want to be on it. And he put together a list. And I was like, man, that list is way too small. I'm going for this guy and this guy that has like a million folks. Who knows if it comes through, but I'm going to swing for the fence, right? He can swing for that one. I'm going to swing for the fence, right? And so that was out of my comfort zone a little bit. I was like, oh, like they might, they might just kind of laugh. Like who the freak does this guy think he is, right? But thought we'd ask, you know what I mean? And then the, the second part that I think is important when it comes to Adaptability and flexibility is whatever your role is, magnify it. I don't care if you're a sports psychologist and you're working with a nine-year-old soccer team, you'd be the best sports psychologist you can possibly be for a nine-year-old soccer team. Let your ego out of the way. Yeah, sure, you'd like to be working with Ray Al Salt Lake, but guess what? These nine-year-olds need you right now. They need the best version of you and they need, they need everything that you've got. Right. And if you can, if you can start stacking small wins that way, you're going to build confidence up so that you can. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but when you're really well prepared for something, isn't it easier to go off script? Yes, absolutely. It is right. Like when we get really prepared for something and then something's just a little off script. Well, well we prepared for this, but guess what? It looks like we're going here. And I got confidence to go there because I was prepared for this, but we got to go a little bit here. I wasn't prepared for that, but here we go. I just feel like it, that's one of the things. And so if you do a really good job of preparing for whatever it is that you do, right, whether you're, you know, working with a bunch of 12-year-olds in the library or whether you're working with graduate school students at the University of Utah Marriott Library, right, like if you do your best job and you're the best version of yourself, it usually leads to being able to be in a changing situation and you can adapt and be flexible a little bit more because you put your heart into it. You put what you could into it. And so- uh, I absolutely, absolutely agree a hundred percent. I just think there are so many great life lessons in that little bit that you just said. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I get it all the time. Like right now, we, I, I have players that play for the Real Salt Lake, which is called the first team, and then the Real Monarchs, which is the second team. And they're always bummed when they get second, when they get sent down with the second team. They're not happy about that. I'm like, go down there and dominate and leave no doubt that you should be with the first team. Right. Go down and be the very best version of yourself with the second team right now so you can get right back here, right? And yeah that helps them to have a little bit different mindset about what they're trying to attack. you got to be the best version of yourself wherever you go, whatever changes happen, you know, and I always use this, this little like kind of lesson where I'll, I'll bring a paperclip in and I'll say, what are paperclips used for? And everybody's like, well, to put pieces of paper together. I'm like, how many of you have used this for anything else besides putting two? Oh yeah. Like, we pick locks, we, you know, we clean the dirt out of our fingernails, we make little necklaces, we, there's, and I go, do you think that the company who sold paper clips to you cares that you didn't use it for its original purpose, or are they just glad that, that this thing is being used in a good way? And they're like, well, they just, they're glad it's being used in a good way. Okay, so many of you are here at this school, at this university, on this team, and you're not being used the way you thought you should be used. Can you not be happy? Can you not just be the best version of whatever it is that you're being asked to do? Because the paperclip does that. And I go, and they sell 35 billion paperclips a year. That's how many? That's, that's seven, or that's five for each of us in the world. 
every single year they sell 35 billion paper clips paper clips wow. are, they're well used right and if you want to be useful you got to be adaptable you got to be flexible you got to be able to change and be able to do what people ask you to do and that's that's really how winning is done that's how you become you know the best version of yourself the measure of your creation if you will Riley, this has been such a great interview. I just, you have so many great things to say. I want to ask just a couple of quick questions to um, wrap us up here. First of all, kind of going back now to your career, can you describe the difference between how you felt working that sales job before you started this path and how you feel now doing the kind of work that you're doing? Ooh, that's a really good question. I guess what I guess what I would say is there there has not been yet, and that doesn't mean that this won't feel like a job again. But in the seven or eight years that I've been doing this, right, there's not been a day where I wake up and I'm like, I just don't want to go today. And I think it's because and and look, when I was working for Stryker and we were selling hospital beds, I mean, we tried to play up the fact that we were helping people, that there were sick people that were laying on these beds and they were receiving therapies and therapeutic, you know, um, mattresses that they were sleeping on. And there was things that these beds could do to help them to survive, but you never really got to see it up close and personal. But I think besides throwing a ball or hitting a ball or playing with a ball, I think my flow is when I sit in front of someone and we talk about some of these concepts and I see the light bulb go off and it's the best, it's the best. Like it's the best, or if I'm in a group setting and we're talking about some of these concepts and they're like, oh my gosh, I've never really thought of it that way. And I can remember when I was in school, there was a couple of concepts were just like, it was just like, oh my gosh, I've been doing it wrong for 40 years and it's going to get so much better because of this. It's just, a, it's an amazing feeling. I feel like it's my flow state. I feel like it's me being in the zone a little bit when I, when I, when I really, every day I help people, but there's those, there's those special moments, probably once a week where it was like really powerful and like the lesson really landed and you're just like, yes. <laughs> and the this difference there. Born to do. This, yes. is what, this is, this is what I knew I could always do. And I thought I could always do it. And it finally is coming through. Right. And it just, it feels different and it's motivating. And I go home and I kiss my wife and I hug my kids and I'm more present with my family when I'm home because I was really present and we had a great experience here. And I'm more present at church and I'm more present with my friends and I just want to really enjoy everybody. And it's, it's weird because, you know, some people come and have me speak and they're like, yeah, we need a motivational speaker. And I'm like, well, I don't think I'm motivational. I'm informational, but I think some of the information that I share is naturally motivating because you're like, Oh, like, this is a great way to look at it. This is a, this is just changing the way that I view this just a little bit. Like I'm just changing the knob just a little bit or reframing this just a little bit. And it can change everything. It can change the whole course. Of well, and it sounds like to me, this is the difference between having a job and having a meaningful career. And that's really what I feel like I am trying to do with this podcast is help people find that meaningful career, which adds so much to your life, as opposed to working a job that you can't wait to get away from, you know, and that's interesting that you said that, because I, you know, I always share that parable, like, uh, where the newspaper reporter, like, sees a bunch of people back in the day, and they're working, and, like, he goes, hey, what are you, what are you doing there, what are you working on, he's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just building this brick wall here, you know what I mean, and then he goes to the next guy, and he goes, what are you doing? He goes, Oh, well, I'm, I'm building this brick wall, but it's, it's a pretty good career. Like you should try it. Like come over here and like put a couple bricks on. He puts a couple bricks on and then he goes to the third guy and he goes, Hey, what are you doing? He goes, me, are you talking to me? He goes, yeah, what are you doing? And he goes, he goes, can't you see what I'm doing? He goes, no, what, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm building a cathedral for the Lord. Like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. Right. And we we're all on different paths right now where i was before where i am now is i'm now i'm building a cathedral right before i was somewhere in between that guy that's just like i'm just working a job and then the other one's like hey this is a pretty good thing you should try this a little bit you know i was 
a little bit enthusiastic, but now it's just like, oh no, wait till you see this when it's all done. Like, it's going to be awesome. I love that analogy. Do you feel like there's anything that you wished you had done sooner or did this career come for you at the right time? Like if you could have gone right into sports psychology after your bachelor's degree or a few years, you know, would, do you have any regrets about that? Or do you feel like it really was a, a process and came at the right time? Yes and no. So, so man, I wish I would have been doing this and feeling these fulfilling feelings for like a long time. Right. Mm-hmm. But part of my success and part of what differentiated me from some of the other sports psychology consultants that I compete with, or that were my friends that were in school with me, that has set me apart was all of that sales experience. Because like I told you, this isn't a job that you just go and like, oh yeah, we're going to pay you this much a year and you're going to get benefits and have a seat and here's your office. And you know, right. like you have to go out and sell this, this service. Right. And so all those years of service and all those years of sales, I'm realizing now that I've hired these two other people that are here that like some of those things come very naturally to me now. I've been able to close big deals and get to people that I, that maybe it's going to take some training for them to learn how to do. So in the beginning, yes. And sometimes I reflect on it and go, man, it just would have been so nice, but I might've gotten myself worked out of the job and been like, well, I have this degree and I'm not really using it because I don't know how to, I don't know how to get any business from it. Right. Right. But the way that it happened, I really believe that it's my path and that all of the things that I did, including playing college football, playing a lot of sports when I was young, being exposed to those sports psychologists, um, having a dad that was growth mindset oriented, being in the business world, learning sales skills, learning how to build relationships with people, learning, learning how to work on a team and work with people. All of that picture was the perfect time for everything to come together for me. And so I really believe that it's just my path. And that if I had done it another way, it might not be as fulfilling or as um, uh, helpful to my family as, as it is now. So I kind of think it, it had to come together this way or else it wouldn't have worked for me. Yeah. And I think that's such a great point for other people who might feel at 40, like it's too late for me. I didn't take advantage of the things I should have. But really, it could be that it's actually just the right timing to step out and try that new career, that new direction, and that, you know, applying some of these things that you've talked about, you know, try to get those daily wins, you know, set those those realistic goals that you're working on the process, and that the end result will come together, even if you don't know exactly what that is. I would love to hear, just as a final thought, what advice, what career advice would you give to um, young adults, teens and young adults, um, whether that kind of fits in with the sports psychology or, or just in general, um, knowing everything that you do from your own ex- experience and then, you know, working with this anxiety generation? So a couple of things. Number one, and I think we talked about this the other day, but there's a beautiful quote from George Eliot that it's never too late to be what you ought to have been. Right? I love it. Yep. Yeah. I, mean, I just, uh, that quote came to my head so many times when I was in graduate school and so many times when I was going through this process. Second thing that I would say to, to the people out there is there's something in your gut that is, um, that is calling you, that's telling you like, you, you need to do this. There's something. Now, it took me a while to really listen to it. And sometimes you have to like slow yourself down and quiet yourself to be able to hear what that is that you're supposed to do. But I really believe all of us have something calling us like to do it and, and to, to be what we ought to have been, right? And then I just think that, you know, my story is a, a love story of hard work and effort and bravery, right? Like all the things that we talk about, like, I, I don't know where I got it from. I don't know how it happened, but it happened, you know? And, I, and it was all because I was willing to take a risk and I was willing to just put it out there. And really, really it, took, it took the nod from my wife, like the gentle push from my wife to be able to do it. 
and for me to really see that like God, you know what if you're going to do it you need to do it now so there was some urgency and I think as I was going to school I love the thought that like one day my kids we're, we all have excuses to to not go back to school to not do this or to not there's a million reasons why I shouldn't have gone back right and I never want my I never wanted my kids to to be able to use me as an excuse well dad wanted to go back and he never did and he just stayed in sales right no dad didn't do that dad changed at 40 and it worked and it was hard and me and my wife had to make sacrifices and and you know if it, if it's late or you feel like it's late like you can do hard things you can do it and there's no doubt in my mind you can do it because i'm not the smartest the smartest guy in the world i'm not the most talented guy in the world i don't have all the answers but if i can do it no doubt about it you can do you can do that thing that's been calling you that you really want to do and so i that that would be my advice is listen to your gut and you know like ted lasso says stop and listen to your heart on the way down to your gut and 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 figure out what it is you want to do and then and then never stop dreaming i mean life is so much easier when we have a goal to chase right when we have a dream to chase and i'm still chasing dreams they're just new dreams right so I love that. Riley, thank you so much for this interview. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for thinking of me. Thanks for joining me today on Career Chat. Any links we talked about will be in the episode notes. You can find me on Instagram at Career Chat Pod. And if you like this episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcast. See you next time. Thank you.